pleasure to welcome back to our series Mr Charles Good, AC Chairman of Flagstaff Partners. Charles, we spoke around about this time last year in a vastly different political, geopolitical and economic environment. I thought we'd open with that. Take me through what you're seeing from a macro perspective in regard to the global economy. Well, Rob, uh, I guess it's one of uncertainty. There's issues with Russia and Ukraine and North Korea, the Middle East, Iran. So there's a lot of unsettled spots around the world with potential outbreaks of uh, terrorism or, or war. There's also an outlook that mo most people think that the US will go into a recession, light or heavy, and Europe. So I think it's a year of slowing economic activity maybe zero economic activity. It'll also be a year of deglobalization as countries want to be more self-reliant with regard to certain key industries. So I would say there's more uncertainty than normal. I want to unpack a few of those themes that you mentioned there. In particular, it's been close on a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine commenced. Yeah. What, what impact has that had? It's had a great impact on food prices and oil prices. I think it's made Russia a poorer, more isolated, more dictatorial country. I think it's united the West. And we've got Sweden and Finland apl applying for NATO uh, membership. But uh, it's united the West in a way that we haven't seen for a long while. I imagine uh, Putin thought he'd have a quick victory. You only go to war, I think, if you feel you'll win. And he probably expected for it to be over in a few weeks, and that hasn't happened. He probably was thinking he wanted to establish or re-establish Russia as a great global power and to start to have a buffer zone around Russia like they did with the Soviet Union. And the remarkable resistance of the Ukrainians. Now, I don't think Russia can lose this war. I don't think a nuclear power country can lose a war because it will resort to um, greater weapons, maybe into that area if they're f looking at failure. They can be forced to negotiate, but not lose. I'm not sure what a Russian win would look like. Uh, they would probably suffer guerrilla warfare from the local people, as we saw in Afghanistan. They'd have a huge job rebuilding Ukraine. So I don't think victory would look very good either. So now we've got a stalemate. Maybe Russia might be doing a little better than our news because we favour Ukraine and we see Zelensky and he needs to be positive in his comments and keep morale up. So I think Russia can be brought to a negotiated treaty. Hopefully uh, Ukraine can, but it will be a, a negotiation or a compromise that neither party is comfortable with. So I can imagine 
maybe the UN coming in and doing a, a, a voting poll of the people in the Don, Donetsk area that Russia holds. And if they vote for Russia, then those areas go to Russia. And if they vote for Ukraine, they go back to Ukraine. So that wouldn't mean uh, Ukraine giving up territory. But the alternative is continued loss of life and destruction of their country. So I can see some compromise like that. And Ukraine would need to be protected against further Russian aggression. So they'd need to enter into some treaty with the West that's accepted by Russia, maybe NATO. But I think we all need to move towards a treaty or negotiated treaty, or this just goes on with loss of life and destruction of villages and towns. And longer term, do you see this resurgence in unity between the West will continue and that the strength of some of these countries surrounding Ukraine, surrounding Russia will be more aligned with the West as opposed to sitting neutral? I'm not sure about this. This is probably the, the height of their, the pressure on them to unite. And there's a number of countries around the world that haven't uh, joined the sanctions against Russia. And uh, you can think of uh, China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, a number of countries in Africa, and a number of countries in South America. So Russia's influence throughout the broader world is not insignificant. And they've, I think, as I understand it, they've been keeping those contacts up quite actively during this war. What about China and Taiwan? What's your reading on the situation there and where do you think it'll end up? Well, that's very difficult because um, one assumes that if there was a war, China would have the advantage being ge so ge geographically close to Taiwan. And the question is where, to what extent America would come to Taiwan's aid, which is uncertain. And if they did, would they be successful? So the tactic uh, strategy, I gather, I imagine, is to make it a big loss, uh, a very heavy toll on China if they uh, took action and therefore to defer the day. And that probably is working. And as long as the Chinese economy is having certain difficulties at the moment, and there's some unrest about COVID restrictions and so forth, I imagine uh, President Xi wouldn't want to have another uh, problem or war. And to the extent that the sanctions have been um, very harmful to Russia, that's a big deterrent too. So I think we're looking at deterrence. And in the new world, sanctions, trade restrictions, and restrictions on access to financial settlements, they've all become very important weapons, really, to deter aggression. So hopefully it'll continue in the current state of uncertainty for many years to come. Closer to home, I want to get your perspective on the Australian economy. What are the themes that you're watching most closely? The international scene. 
has a big impact on Australia because we're a big trader. The other issue is whether, to what extent we have inflation and interest rates. We start off, uh, Rob, with a very good position. Uh, we have low unemployment, around 4%. We, we look like as if we'll have positive growth in calendar 2, 23, and many countries won't. We've got inflation maybe at 7%, but I think falling to 4%. We've had interest rates rise from maybe a quarter percent to 3% plus, maybe going towards 4%, the official cash rate, and then levelling off. Agriculture's doing well, and the minerals are doing well. So I think the economy's not bad shape. Uh, relative to other economies, we're in very good shape. We do have government deficits and government debt at too high a level, but that's a worldwide problem and we'll need to address that. So in a relative sense, I'd be optimistic about the Australian economy. I think uh, interest rates could stay up even if inflation falls, because I'm used to real interest rates of 2%. So if inflation falls to three, that in a historical way would still lead to nominal interest rates of 5%. So I think they can go up to four, four and a bit, and then stay there even though inflation falls. There was a lot of commentary towards the back end of last year about Australia moving into a recession at some point this year, potentially in the first half. It would seem, though it's only a month or so into the year that there's causes to be optimistic about. Can Australia escape recession even if the US and the UK went into one? Well, Robert, depends how heavy their recession is. I think there's a good chance of it being a light and very modest recession. Uh, I think the Federal Reserve Bank in USA is very sensitive about not fighting inflation to the extent that you cause a recession. In other words, the, the medicine might solve one problem and actually create another. So I think they'll start to ease and give time to see the ease the, the size of their rate increases, maybe have a pause after a few more and see let time elapse to see the delayed impact of the rate rises they've already had. I think Minerals will be, keep on being needed around the world and new projects are being delayed by environmental conditions. I think we'll avoid a recession and I, I think our reserve banks indicating they're likely to pause maybe one or two more in, in, small in, increases in interest rates but have a pause and see how the economy is travelling. Clearly it's been a turbulent 12 months for markets with the index floating between 6,500 and 7,500 yeah. points. From my understanding, IPO activities dropped, M&A activities dropped over the past 12 months as compared with the 12 months prior to that. What's your assessment of, of this turbulence that's taken hold in the stock market and, and any predictions as to where it'll be over calendar year 2023? <laughs> I wouldn't make a prediction. You'd say... There are more uncertainties than usual. But to some extent, the markets are looking across the valley. In other words, the bad news is being recognised now. 
We know we've got a Ukraine-Russian war. We know that we've had supply shortages. We know there's deglobalization going on as countries want to be more self-reliant on key industries. We recognize the government has high debt and it needs to take action to try and reduce the government debt. And that's a worldwide issue. With inflation, I think companies have taken advantage of increasing prices and adding to their profit margins because people accept an increase in price because of COVID or because of the Russian-Ukraine war and they've added a bit on. So profit margins are probably very high. Probably our interest, interim results coming through in Feb-March will be quite good, steady. Maybe more of a test in the final results in October where we'll see uh, more competition, supply chains freeing up, more international trade, maybe more difficult then, and the world may be not quite as buoyant. I guess I'd just say my best guess is that the, the market would go sideways with volatility up and down around that straight line. Listed company valuations, as you know, in certain sectors, in particular technology stocks, have reduced yeah. remarkably over the past 24 months. Is your sense that these valuations are more realistic now? Were they overpriced, fully priced? Well, with the benefit of hindsight, they're overpriced. And those high-tech stocks have come down 30% or more. But some of them, the established ones, have got a great future, really, and they're very big companies and they have very big cash reserves. So it's the more minor up-and-coming companies that have been suffering. But I think the markets move from pricing companies on revenue. Last year we were, or a year or two ago, we were pricing technology companies as so many times revenue. While I come from a past era when it was, you looked at earnings. And I think the market's going back to more defensive stocks infrastructure, health, looking at value stocks with higher interest rates, future earnings are not worth as much. They get discounted back, so that affects adversely technology stocks. There'll be more conscious awareness of uh, yields on stocks with higher interest rates. The markets are quite high at the moment in Australia. I mean, it's recovered to near its all-time high and there's a lot of uncertainty. So with some hesitation, I'd say sideways. And based on, generally speaking, what you're seeing, whether it's conversations with business leaders, whether it's conversations with clients, whether it's conversations with partners in the firm, what do you anticipate will occur throughout this year in terms of the stock market? Do you expect to see, or markets more generally, do you expect to see capital raisings? Do you expect to see companies shedding their workforce and becoming more agile in the way that they manage their capital? Are you expecting to see more companies uh, delisting from the stock exchange? My foresight's not great. I don't see a lot of activity changing, frankly. But companies will be looking at their workforce, sure, looking at productivity, uh, you know, work from home, but come into the office th at least three days a week, maybe. There'll probably be more regulation from government. 
companies will certainly be focusing more on climate impact on their business and their need to show they're reducing emissions and the government will require that. So more regulation, more uh, climate focused emissions and more focus on governance. I think there'll be more red, red tape and regulation. That segues well into my next question which is it's now nine or ten months into a new Labor government at a federal level. What have been the, the major changes that you've seen so far? I think our Labor governments started very well. The budget, I think, was quite reasonable. They've been very good in, on the international scene. I mean, we seem to have repaired our relationships with France. There's now a dialogue with China. There's a focus on the South Pacific Islands and that region, which is our neighbourhood. They've been good on defence. I think we're focusing on how we defend our own country. We need more missiles and mines in the sea to defend against uh, vessels coming into our shores, uh, unwelcome vessels. They've established an integrity commission. I think they've started very well. There are signs, however, of them reverting to a traditional Labor government. In my mind, negative signs such as abolishing the Australian Building and Construction Commission. They started to f fiddle with franking credits. They've introduced uh, multi-employer bargaining, which we had years ago, pattern bargaining and led to inflation and was very difficult for smaller companies or the less productive companies. Uh, Dr Chalmers gave a speech or wrote an article last week about a new capitalism which in, envisages a greater direction from the government and greater involvement in industry and maybe the price of gas being uh, fixed by the government, domestic gas, is an indication of them coming into the economy and uh, giving directions. So I think we can have a little of that but those signs are foreboding of too much interference, I think, with the free market economy. I mean, I come from a liberal background which favours libertarianism, uh, the individual, smaller government, smaller taxation, the government having a net, a welfare net to help those in need, but the liberals are more a hand up to people than a hand out and certainly not a heavy hand on of regulation by government and an environment which sanctions the ambitious to achieve their capabilities. Uh, while I think there are signs that the Labor government will, re will move to its traditional role which would be unfortunate because they've started so well and I think they have a difficult position and an unusual position for Labor. Uh, Labor usually come in and they spend up with ideas and they're more innovative and, than the Liberals who are more status, uh, keep the status quo. So that usually leads to a financial mess, uh, over expenditure deficits. The Liberals are elected and they clean up the mess then we move, bring back Labor for more innovative ideas. 
This time, quite unusually, Labor have come into a financial mess because the Liberal government had to assist the economy get through COVID. So they have an unusual situation to face of how they handle inheriting a deficit and inheriting sizable debt. If they can handle that well, then they'll be a very good government. I want to ask you about the future of the Liberal Party. Uh, lost some fantastic members in the 2022 election, in particular Josh Frydenberg here in Victoria, as well as others. What, what, what is the future? Some say it needs to lurch more to the right, others say it needs to be more centre. What, what, what's your outlook? Oh, I, think, I think they need to appeal to a broad spectrum of the community and therefore they need to be the centre. Traditionally, the Liberal parties or governments are focused on the economic scene. And I think they need to realise that the voters are looking at a broader spectrum of issues now. The involvement of women, climate, integrity commission. I think in general the, the census shows that the country, Australia, is becoming less religious. And I think in a uh, political scene we're becoming less ideological. And we're looking to elect a government that... Uh, we think will manage the economy and the country in all, across a broad spectrum of issues better than the other party. So a broader issues are coming into play and it's not the traditional wealthy voting for the Liberals and the working class voting for Labor. That's changed and people are saying which, which government, which party will put will uh, be the better government in handling the future. And in a way, that, that's quite sensible because there's so many issues that will face that government that they don't, we don't know about today. They're not the issues that they go to the electorate on. New issues will come while they're in government. COVID, Russia invading Ukraine, other issues. And you need to judge who will be competent in handling these broad range of issues, some of which are unknown. And a question that's really facing both parties, but in particular the Liberal Party, how do they attract this new generation of leaders to join the party and, and stand uh, in some of these elections, in particular people with a business background or people with a sports, you know, sportsmanship background or people with a, a diverse range of backgrounds as opposed to the Labor Party, which traditionally, as you know, has had people drawn from the union movement or the legal movement. How does the Liberal Party try and counteract that and attract business people because they'll get paid more in the private sector than they would in the public sector? So what's the, what's the secret ingredient, do you think? Well, a number of people, regardless of the income, like to go into Parliament if they see themselves going into government because they can influence the future of the country and they have power. They can make a contribution. So it's not only money. And they're not that badly paid with their pensions, by the way. But I suppose the Liberal Party needs to strengthen their state organisations. They need to have a broader spectrum of policies. They need to attract the young and women have more involvement by women. And how do you do that? You do that by having policies. I th and I think the, the spirit of uh, 
the individual the, uh, and free markets. Their philosophy is a good philosophy. They've got to then tra translate that into policies facing the issues of the moment, not just the traditional areas, and be a little less status quo and more risk-taking in policies. In terms of reform, Charles, what, what are the key areas or policies that you'd like to see the federal government implement? Well, uh, uh, Rob, I guess you'd start with energy. I'd like to see a, a considered uh, transition policy to low emissions. We all know where we want to get to in 2050. But I think it's silly to say we'll stop coal production now or we'll stop gas production before we have the renewables coming on stream. So I think we've got to have a transition policy. And in that, in the early years, we've got to encourage new supply of gas to keep the price down as we transition to a lower emissions power system. We've got to work out the costs of renewables, not only when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, but the costs of transmitting that to, to the areas of population and also the costs of backup and also the costs of renewing the equipment. Batteries probably last only 15 years. Uh, solar and wind facilities probably 20 years. So they need, you need to cost the emissions, you need to cost the replacements. You also need to assess the benefits in total emissions in, once you've taken account of the emissions of, of mining the, the minerals needed for these new facilities. So we could have better information, far better information. And I'd like to see us embrace a discussion on nuclear energy for power. This is peaceful use of energy. They can now produce small modular nuclear plants. So there's not the huge cost, not the huge time to build them. And they can be placed in rural areas like Portland to provide power for the smelter down there in Victoria and allow um, regional diversification of industry. So I don't think it's good enough uh, to just say, oh, nuclear is too expensive. Over 30 countries around the world have nuclear as a significant source of their power. And most of those countries have lower energy prices than we do. So we need to embrace th this discussion. And when we get into emissions and discussion of climate change and the voice, I think there's too much playing the man rather than the addressing the issues and questions that the, that particular person raises. So in terms of changes that you'd like to see, we've spoken about energy. What, what else do you think? Well, I, I'd like to see more uh, focus on productivity. So the Productivity Commission has made a number of recommendations. I'd like to see them being discussed and implemented after discussion. I get sad when I see bushfires and floods destroying villages and it costs us five billion to restore the, the townships and so on. And then 
five, eight years later, we have to do it again. I think the government should have a very active um, disaster prevention and recovery commission where we allocate one or two billion each year of preventative action for floods and fu clearing fires, clearing debris, so that we spend maybe no more, but we're not recovering, we're not restoring something that's being damaged. We're spending it proactively on prevention. So I'd like to see that in the budget and, and spent annually. I'd like to see us managing uh, NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, better. This, we've got a problem that a motherhood area comes up that no one wants to disagree with, but then it just blows out of proportion. And it's a part of our welfare, but there are other areas of welfare, the homeless, people on drugs, people suffering from alcohol, um, there's so many areas, unemployment, skill training, education. You can't just let something focus on one area and it keep on blowing out. So NDIS is now $35 billion a year and growing. And a, we only spend $27 billion on aged care. Uh, there's a lot less at the moment on unemployment. And NDIS is costing us nearly 50, nearly half, not quite, the total budget we spend on age pensions. So it should have been brought in. We've gone from nothing in this area 10 years ago to a huge amount. And it would have been better, I think, to have addressed the problem and had some pilot programs of looking after dis disabled people in an area and see how it works and spread it. And if you make something free, you just increase overuse. At the moment, there's no incentive for a doctor to say you're ineligible to the patient for disability insurance. So you've got to have rules and regulations and police them and manage the costs. And it's something we want. And people should be able to examine it without, with their arguments being addressed, not playing the man. And we're in danger of having issues when they become a motherhood issue, just grow and grow and grow. So that would be one area. If I was to interfere in the free markets, I'd like to see a one-off increase in the remuneration of nurses and teachers and aged care workers without it flowing through to the community. And I think that would be fair because these people provide a service to say the health industry or the schools where the other side's government. So it's not market force where I oh, will up the price and pay you more. It's not two free market forces coming to give the price. And I think these areas, therefore, are underpaid, don't attract the resources. And instead of that putting the price up, it just means the service is not provided. So that is an area that it could, if it could be isolated to those areas, benefit from being addressed. 
I think a lot of the things the government are doing are good. Addressing uh, uh, our foreign affairs, our defence, the environment and so forth. But there are a few issues that I'd like to see a focus on. You mentioned the voice there. I'm interested to hear your take in on whether you see this referendum being successful, particularly in light of the so many unsuccessful attempts at changing the constitution over the past 50 or 60 years. It, do you, firstly, do you see it as something that's necessary and if necessary, do you see it getting up? It's part of a spectrum of demands, I think, or from the Aboriginal people. And I think it just goes on and on. Uh, we started with Mabo and land rights. Then we moved to an apology, which I think Prime Minister Rudd gave. Then uh, Prime Minister Howard suggested a preamble recognising the Aboriginal people as the first peoples. And I think that was good. Now we're on to a voice. And if we give the, do the voice, I think there'll then be a demand for a treaty. And then there'll be a demand for compensation. So. I think this is just one of a string of steps and I, I would like us to stop, acknowledge the Aboriginal people in a preamble as the original people uh, of Australia. I, I prefer the, the phrase First Peoples than First Nations because it wasn't a nation when white people came. And then get on to addressing the issue which we all want to do of raise their standards of living and that means education, health and employment and, and a better use of the money the government spends in this area. Now the argument of the voice is we'd have more uh, Indigenous involvement in that, that expenditure. I'm not sure about that. They're talking of having 24 people, not sure if they're elected or unelected, centralised in Canberra, giving a voice to their policies for a myriad of tribes with different situations. I'd prefer us to listen to the tribes in the various localities and spend the money in conjunction with their advice. And, um, there are a lot of organisations. There's one called Empowered Communities, where the, the indigenous population of that community talks with government about the policies relevant to them. I guess we need to listen more to these, but there is a whole structure of hearing uh, the Aboriginal voice already now. If we wanted to do it in Canberra, I think we should just do it, not put it in the constitution. There's nothing to stop the government legislating now to have some ad additional advisory body and we can see how it works. Then it can be changed by parliament. Once it's in the constitution, you get judicial, judicial interpretation of what that means. I feel it's the uh, referendum's a bit unfair. Um, there's no indication that they're going to send the case for yes and the case for no to everyone. We know the case for yes is going to be distributed. Those 
arguing for years getting tax deductibility for donations for their campaign. That hasn't been given to the no voice yet. This is not particularly Australian. I think it's got a lot of problems and it's not clear that it's addressing the issues. And I think the end result, we're all in agreement. We'd like to have better expenditure of our money on Indigenous people. We haven't reduced the gap nearly enough and we should be ashamed of ourselves. And we should take action. But it doesn't have to be in the Constitution. And action is better than talking. We hear the government talking about wanting to hear the Aboriginal voice. Yet last year, alcohol bans were lifted in communities without discussion with the communities, and it's caused a lot of problems. The debit card, where the woman of the household could get the welfare and spend it on health and education at the supermarket and not on alcohol. That debit card was withdrawn in many communities without discussion with the women of those communities. So we surely need better discussion. And, that, and there's not, not a lot of evidence that that's taking place. And that's meant to be underpinning this discussion. As you know, there's a tendency to tear ourselves down in this country, and we saw examples of it on Australia Day last week, as we've seen over Australia Day over recent years. What's your opinion on, on changing the date? Just on your first point, Australia can be very proud of being a multicultural country. A quarter of Australians were born overseas. That's incredible. The comparative figures for USA would be 15% and UK 14%. We're double the number, of the proportion of our population born overseas than those countries. Rob, did you know it's nearly one in two people in this country are born overseas or have one parent that was born overseas? So we're a very successful multicultural country. For countries with more than 10 million population, we have the highest proportion of people born overseas than any other country except Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And they're just higher because of their guest worker programs. So it's just not our indigenous people. They're 3.3% of the population. They're the first peoples. And the treatment of them's not working with 28% of prisoners in jails are Aboriginals. And, it, it, and a lot of deaths take place. We need a better way of implementing our law with them. And when someone transgresses, I don't know why we don't set up farms or where people can have something around their ankle but not be imprisoned in a jail cell. And they can go and learn how to till the soil or work the farm or learn a craft. I think we've got to move away from prisons for such people and have some other area where they're confined because they've transgressed the law, but they learn a trade and they can relate with the land and the, have freedom to walk around and enjoy the sun. I think we can do a lot better in that way. I'm very happy with the 26th of January is Australia Day, but 
a proportion of our population find it in offensive. They think there was an invasion. I don't think there was an invasion. I think when, when uh, Governor Philip arrived, he didn't find many uh, indigenous people and a few came out and greeted him. I don't think on that day there was a shot fired. I don't think those people, those natives, could easily communicate with the natives across the harbour. They were probably different languages. Their meetings were probably more warlike and friendly. So, but other skirmishes and killings took place in latter years. Australia Day should be a day where we unite the multicultural country we are. We give thanks for our standard of living and we rejoice in our country. So if this particular day upsets a proportion of our population, I'd be happy to change it. I wouldn't change it to any particular day, which then gives rise to is that appropriate recognition. I'd just pick a day like the second it, uh, Monday or Friday for a long weekend, the second Monday or Friday in February, which has no particular significance except it's a day where we rejoice and um, take pride in our country and maybe reflect on some transgressions past and uh, dream about some future achievements. To close out our discussion, I just wanted to finish with a few more general questions. What do you think Australia needs to be doing to continue to attract large-scale capital, whether it's for new industries or from new businesses or from companies in the US or companies in uh, Southeast Asia? How do we, how do we become a, even more of a powerhouse? Well, we have an economic and government environment that welcomes private enterprise. And if we have that, we've got the resources to attract capital and people. We've got great agriculture, and the world is maybe short of food. Certainly China imports 25% of its food requirements. We've got great minerals and opportunity for exploration, and also opportunity to further process our minerals. I think we could, the government could interfere in the market and give encouragement to certain new industries, uh, cyber security, artificial intelligence, certain defence industries, semiconductors. We could make special deals for the leading companies, from the leading company from Taiwan maybe, to establish the semiconductor uh, industry in Australia. And once that's established, other industries will cluster around it and we'll start to um, have a stronger manufacturing sector in the high technology areas. So Singapore's led the way in a government encouraging new industries and then those industries flourishing. So that's an area where I think Dr Chalmers, if he wants to interfere with the economy more, could do so fruitfully and creatively. You're a proud Victorian. When we sat down here at a similar time last year, we were just coming out of lockdown or had been out of lockdown for a couple of months. When you look at it around at, at Melbourne in particular, but also when you travel around Victoria, how have you seen the state has rebounded and is there anything more, do 
do you think that could be done in terms of attracting events, sporting events or arts or museums or whatever the case may be? What, what more do you think could make Melbourne even better? I think we've been very good in uh, attracting events. We've got something going on all the time. I think we're a very hospitable country, com uh, state. Uh, I'd like to see uh, more control of our infrastructure uh, for it to be more tightly managed, uh, uh, to come in more on costs and quicker. I think the community under COVID was prepared to give up its freedom for government action and, and security and government addressing the issues. I now think we need to have government step back and let the freedom and private enterprise flourish more. Great answer. Charles Good, AC, always a privilege talking to you. Thanks for your time. Pleasure, Rob.